When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick here to talk about the defense from that win over the Rams on Sunday. Doing the show solo tonight, so it'll just be me. If you hear some occasional breaks, that'll be me taking a drink and uh, putting myself on mute while I do so. But uh, anyway, here to share the next uh, hour or so with you, and then maybe a little bit more than that in a second half of this show. Uh, Very wet day at the bank yesterday. Not intolerably so. We were warned the the weather, of course, would be a factor very early in the week. Um, it showed high wind as potentially being an issue for this game, but actually the the, the rain was fairly tolerable and it or intermittent. There was uh, you know some drizzle going on at times. There were other times when we actually didn't have any rain at all. There, um, the low wind really showing up on the goalposts. I kind of wonder if the, if some of that was just a uh, flags being wet and kind of adhering to the to the pole and whatnot. But it did not look like there was a lot of wind. It did not feel like there was a lot of wind. It was it was comfortable at the stadium, and it uh, it certainly was it proved to be quite good conditions for passing the football which was really not expected. So a little bit of rain is actually usually good for the um, offense because it impairs the defense from really teeing off on the pass rush, and it makes double moves and other things the receivers can do to juke the secondary as particularly effective, including moves after the catch. And I think we saw some of that on both sides in this game. Uh, in terms of the secondary doing a good job, uh, sorry, the uh, the receivers doing a good job fooling the secondary on where they were going. So anyway, fairly ideal day for passing the football, which I think really showed up in some of the pressure statistics in particular from this game. We're going to talk a little bit about that in terms of the the kind of pressure the Ravens put on, being a little bit below their season average and what that might mean going forward. Before we go on uh, with that, though, I think one of the defining elements of this game we're going to look back on and really appreciate as we remember this game. And I think this is going to be one of the games we remember, uh, particularly if the Ravens make a deep run in this uh, in this year in the playoffs, is the incredible crowd noise we had. So there were three separate penalties, two of which were very significant against the Rams. Two false starts, one of which stalled a drive. Now, admittedly, stall a drive is probably over-crediting it. It turned a third and 12 into a third and 17. They had to run the play again. They gained 11 yards on that play and stopped them short of the stick. So that was one stall. But then an enormous 
absolutely enormous delay of game in overtime, third, third and four into third and nine, um, which forced the punt that was returned by Wallace. The, well, the, the third and nine failure forced the punt that was returned then by Wallace for the game-winning score. Um, so that incredible crowd noise uh, w- was really a big deal. On that delay of game penalty, kind of an interesting circumstance that that the center Shelton really couldn't hear a damn thing, and his eyes were were focused straight ahead. You'd think he'd have strayed his eyes at some point to the play clock, but I guess the way that Tennessee and not that, that the Rams do it rather is that they have the right guard, uh, in this case Dotson, looking at the play clock and then tapping the center to set off the play. Anyway, his tap came late. Stafford was clapping like a maniac behind him for the football. Uh, Coleman did not deliver it. Coleman Shelton did not deliver it. And the uh, uh, ball went for delay of game with a snap just a, a, a half second too late, um, you know, in terms of getting off uh, with the with the late tap. So that that crowd noise was really something special. And I think there's something that is is maybe a, a physics thing, may be a real thing, or I may just be imagining it. But some of the times that the crowd has been the loudest at M&T Bank Stadium has been when the crowd has been um, fairly sparse. And the two games that I'm remembering, one is this game, because there were a lot of empty seats with the with the weather. People were not filling up every seat in the second half of this game, or even really in the first half. A lot of people left at halftime. And I think that you get more reverberation off the concrete and maybe even off the seats themselves than you do off the people. But somebody who who knows more about physics could probably explain that. You obviously have less people making noise as well, but I think you just get... I think you end up with more noise that way. The other game I can remember being like that was that 2003 comeback against Seattle. Fantastic comeback. And obviously, you know, the last, um, let's see what it would have been, about 17 minutes or so of that game was something really special, beginning with Ed Reed's block punt and all the things that happened. Uh, There's a string of about 15 plays in there, Dallas Thomas penalty and the strip by Ray Lewis and the and the uh, interference call and the 44-yard tip and catch to uh, Frank Sanders, of all people, off Demarcus Robinson, or Marcus Robinson. And then uh, for the four touchdown, it catches all the stuff that happened in that game. Uh, with the Ravens down 17 points, most of that crowd had left. And the crowd was you know, sparse, and it, it was extremely loud um, in that game. Uh, part of what I you know, might have been remembering about that game is it's one of the few games where the energy level was so high at the end of the game that you ran out into the parking lot and people were high-fiving each other there who didn't know each other. It's just, you know, it's one of these, you know, everybody you see, you want to high-five kind of thing. Not like being at a road Ravens game where you might do that normally, you know, and and, uh, and after a road win on the playoffs, there's always something kind of really special that you, you see other Ravens fans and you, you high-five or you, you fist bump or whatever you might do. This was just, it, it, everybody's energy levels, like they just drank three cups of coffee at 1130 at night. And, you know, they might be thinking about sleeping normally, but they just they, they can't, you know, set their energy level down. And that's what it was. Leaving this game as well. Um, you know, a lot of people didn't want to leave the stadium really quickly because that celebration was something really special. Um, the Ravens made the point and Harbaugh made the point that, you know, they weren't out at midfield to shake the hands of the losing team, which is not really great sportsmanship. But, you know, they were celebrating. He had trouble getting back to shake Sean McVay's hand. And, and of course, Stafford is out there looking around like he wants to probably shake Lamar's hand. Uh, but he doesn't want to go down to the celebration to do it. Um, and who would with that with that melee? But uh, uh, anyway, the uh, exciting end of the game, obviously, I think it's going to be one of the finishes 
that we really remember in Ravens history. And I know I'll, I'll remember this game for a long time. You have, we have visual memories we carry with ourselves for the rest of our life. And, and, and that one and the other elements of this game that are more emotional, I think we'll take with us for quite some time. Let's start talking about the 37 to 31 final score because it's an odd one and not a uh, has been one that's been repeated in Baltimore sports history. So there have been 30 total games in NFL history, which ended by a score of exactly 37 to 31. 16 of those have been overtime games. So not uncommon that games go 31, 31 into overtime and then end on a touchdown. Uh, This was the second time the Ravens had beaten the Rams in Baltimore by exactly that score in overtime. They did so in their very first season, 1996, on a Tester Verde to Jackson pass uh, in overtime with I think like four seconds left in overtime uh, when they used to play 15 minutes. Uh, and that was a that was one of the really special games that 1996 season was was uh, seeing him drive down the field. That 1996 team, by the way, a lot better than the four and twelve record would tell you. They were a lot better than that in terms of like Devoa and other statistics. They held the lead in the second half a lot and lost it. Um, but you know they had a they had a Pro Bowl quarterback in Testaverde that year. Uh, they had some great receivers, uh, so they could move the ball offensively. They had a great no huddle offense. They just could not could not leave it on the field and they wouldn't allow them to play no huddle for most of the season because the defensive line was just decimated by injuries and the defense, even with Ray Lewis there in his rookie season, really couldn't stand up to anybody's offense. So uh, uh, they had to really be very careful and judicious about when they would decide to play no huddle offense uh, in which they were fairly unstoppable as a unit in terms of, of moving the ball down the field. Going back to 37 to 31 though, uh, so they had the two games against the Rams, but the other one in Baltimore sports history is a very you know, bittersweet memory from my youth, which is the 1977 playoff loss to the Raiders on Christmas Eve, 37 to 31 in double overtime. Uh, I remember going to that game and uh, and walking home afterwards. Uh, we only lived about a mile from the ballpark, so it was fairly easy for us to to get home on our own from those things. But a what a disappointing loss that was for Baltimore fans. So. Uh, uh, even though Christmas was the next day at, at age 14, um, this this was not a uh, a, a merrymaking uh, time. And uh, uh, still can remember some of the things we were sitting in, in some of the really, truly lousy seats down in the corner of the end zone because those, those 550 temporary seats they used to have down there, they might have cost more by 1977. They were 550 when I went to my first uh, uh, football game. I remember that, which was the second game. It was the, the fog game. Uh, but we're sitting down in those seats. And they, uh, uh, the pass literally to Dave Casper that set up uh, the, the score. Actually, it might have been the score that tied the game. It might have been the score that, that ended up winning the game. But uh, uh, was right over his head. And he had trouble deciding whether he wanted to look back or left or right to, to, uh, to find the ball over his head. And he caught it right over the, the top of his helmet. A very, very difficult catch to make. And, you know, unfortunately, one that, uh, that he did and that uh, – that uh, was an unfortunate, anyway, memory for my youth, but a, but a you know, pretty historic football game to be at. Uh, I've had the good fortune to be at two double overtime games of that in the Mile High Miracle in my lifetime of the the five that have ever been played in the NFL. 
All right, let's get back to this game, though. Another game with some poor officiating, I thought, on both sides. Uh, It's funny. The Ravens got away with an enormous block in the back, as I saw it, by Charlie Kolar on the return, uh, which is good because they certainly had a lot of calls go against them during the the game in terms of that that phantom DPI on Humphrey. Uh, I thought a fairly phantom unnecessary roughness on Marcus Williams. Uh, who I don't think uh, ever contacted the helmet of the receiver on that play. Um, so anyway, the, the 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 flag by Kolar, it's interesting to hear Harbaugh talk about it today because you see what you want to see. And Harbaugh says, yeah, it's a good thing his hands were in front of the jersey and whatnot. Well, I understand John's need to not contradict what the officials have called on the field and the risk of being fined and that and also. But there's also a fine line to walk between not just BSing you know, in terms of, yeah, that was a perfect buck. It's definitely not the way he would teach Kolar to do it, I don't believe. Uh, but if you didn't listen to that uh, segment that Harbaugh did, the, the, uh, the conference from today, really worth going back to because Harbaugh talks special teams and it goes through a long explanation of what happened on that play. And aside from the block by Kolar, I think he did a very good job of explaining things. And he, he introduces terminology that I've never heard of, a sea patch block. You know, never heard of that. Climbing, okay, I understand that one, you know, because that happens in offensive line play and whatnot. There's a whole bunch of discussion about that. Um, but it, it's often thought that Harbaugh is more of a motivator and is hired more for that than he was his X's and O's ability. But if you really dig into... The times, the rare times, frankly, that a Harbaugh really talk hexes knows. He does it on special teams. It's really terrific. This is one of only a couple times I've ever heard him do it. Um, and he does it on offense or defense. It's usually to talk about the other team. That's the only time you can get him to talk about X's and O's is to talk about the other teams, you know, kind of their strengths and weaknesses. But he doesn't ever really want to lay out X's and O's about how the Ravens are doing it. Uh, and, and that's just part of his non-information sharing, um, you know, mantra. Uh, that, that he that he that he follows. So uh, this was really cool to to get him to talk through on special teams what's going on. It's a good listen if you if you go back to that uh, uh, from uh, Monday afternoon the the press conference. Let's see what else we want to talk about. Okay, here's another Harbaugh thing: a very weird challenge on the touchdown that put the Rams up in the game. So. Odd, odd, odd challenge. So the Rams were went up five. No, they didn't. What did they do? They went up. Anyway, they went up on the touchdown. They were they were uh the Ravens led 23-22. So the Rams scored six to make it 28 to 23. And they had choice to go for one or two. So of course they went for two. Um, but on what was very clearly a clean catch by Demarcus Robinson in the end zone, um, Harbaugh threw a challenge flag. Well, there's two things wrong with that. Number one is Demarcus Robinson obviously caught the football, and there's no way anybody could, you know, could make a mistake on that that would cause somebody to throw a challenge flag. The other thing is it's a scoring play. It's not challengeable. I actually thought that might have been a penalty. I remember there being a few years ago where somebody, maybe a Lions coach, threw, maybe even Jim Swartz even, threw a, a flag, uh, threw the challenge flag down. It was not a challengeable play, and I thought he got penalized for it. Um, so it didn't happen on this play, and uh, it was suggested to me by uh, one person on Twitter, and it's very astute, I think, that it might have been an opportunity by Harbaugh to call a timeout and give his defense a little more time to set up for what was an absolutely crucial two-point conversion. And sure enough, the Ravens uh, stopped the two-point conversion. 
They moved down the field. They went ahead in the game themselves, scored the two-point conversion to go up by three, and then still had the margin of error to allow the field to be uh, reversed, a field goal kicked by um, uh, the Rams to set it to overtime. Um, By the way, I'm going to talk about this on the offensive pod a little bit, but extremely poor clock management by the Ravens, not to get that clock run down more on the, the drive where they scored the touchdown. Extremely poor. Some great things happen in terms of Nelson Aguilar figuring out exactly how to uh, drag the safety out of position. We'll talk about that a little on the offensive pod as well. But very poor clock management. Nelson Aguilar did not stay in bounds on a play where he really should have. Um, they had other opportunities to run the football, which I think would have made sense on an early down, more than one early down in there to try and burn more clocks so that they didn't give Stafford a chance to drive down the field and kick that game-tying field goal or even put the ball in the end zone and lose the game. And one of the things that started happening is Harbaugh's post-game diatribe was more religious than I've ever heard him be. And uh, it had a, you know, a high Christian slant to it and, and uh, uh, talking about Christmas and, uh, relating it to football and December football in particular, and 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 the special memories and whatnot that it that it brought together. He's tying an advent to it together, and I'm thinking, look, I remember Christmas night 2016 and how we were betrayed by poor clock management, uh, particularly Uschek diving into the end zone uh, early with a minute and 18 to go and giving the Steelers a chance to run the field back, and the Steelers easily should have had a field goal. They had two timeouts left. The Ravens could have burned them down to at least nothing and maybe nothing and almost no time as well. But they chose instead to go into the end zone um, at that exact moment. And then, of course, Roethlisberger drove the field and Heinz Ward, I think, had the immaculate extension. I'm not sure if it was Heinz Ward or if it was somebody else actually at that point. It could have been Heinz Ward in 2016, but whoever did it had the immaculate extension and uh, and scored on the uh, on the play there to uh, to cost the Ravens a potential division title. So, um, very frustrating uh, loss that night, and I had just had this feeling of dread that that was going to happen again against the Rams in this game, giving Stafford the opportunity to move the ball downfield with four downs under these very ideal passing circumstances where pass rushers having trouble getting off. Receivers are being able to make double moves and uh, give the uh, uh, defense lots of trouble. So anyway, frustrating, frustrating day in terms of that. We'll talk more about that in the offense in terms of what really went wrong there. But this this weird challenge, I still can't figure out why Harbaugh threw the flag. And I was kind of hoping the question would come up today, but I did not see it. So in terms of what he was trying to accomplish with that, at least it wasn't on the uh, the clips I saw out there on Twitter. Uh if you're looking for the the single occurrence from this game, which was by far the biggest deal, of course, is the injury to Hamilton. And uh, Hamilton, uh, let's put it this way. When Hamilton was in the game, the Ravens allowed 4.1 yards per play. When Hamilton was out of the game, they allowed 7.7 yards per play. So it makes a night and day difference to have Mollett instead of Hamilton in that slot, which is what they had basically for the whole game um, after he was hurt. After he was hurt. Uh, Hamilton made all kinds of nice downhill plays in this game. He did have a 15-yard DPI that was costly. Somebody asked me if that was included in those yards per play statistics. It is not. Uh, and obviously was a significant play, but there's only the non-penalty snaps, also the non-kneel, non-spike snaps uh, when you hear yards per play numbers like that from me. But uh, Hamilton's injury, uh, we have new news today. 
that uh, Harbaugh, you know, is saying he's day to day. Of course, with Harbaugh, we don't know. Um, Bleacher Report, one of the guys there, Schultz, uh, heard that there is a um, uh, grade one MCL sprain uh, and get various opinions of whether that means, you know, a week or two or three or but it's little or no time. And I think the hope right now would be that he'd be back for the Miami game in Baltimore. So Miami playing Tennessee tonight. And uh, uh, hopefully the Ravens are in a, a, a position still where a win in that game effectively puts them, keeps them in control of the number one seed and maybe even seals it at that point since there'll be uh, uh, only one week to go in the season. It would be really nice if they, uh, if they didn't have to uh, play the game against the Steelers in order to get the one seed. So anyway, good uh, uh, good news on Hamilton. I think in in any kind of relative sense, uh, you don't like to see Kyle Hamilton standing on the sidelines. He was part of the celebration at the end of the game, which is was probably an indicator that that things were going to be uh, could be better. Uh, but anyway, really nice to to, to uh, see him play as well as he did for the time he was in there, and then the Ravens hold on to win a game uh, when he was out of there. Talk a little bit about what Hamilton's absence really means and that how the safety position now is in quite a bit of flux and that slot corner position. So the Ravens have a few things going on right now. Um, Hamilton more than likely will not play this next game would be my guess. It may even be a case where they also hold him out of the San Francisco game. I guess if they win at Jacksonville, it really takes some of the pressure off for him to play that San Francisco game. Uh, so they might, they might just keep him out for that as well. Um, but Mollett has not been as good. Um, and his, his play has been up and down at times. He's been exceptionally good as a pass rusher, as a run defender. He's been all right in coverage, but not really particularly good in coverage and, you know, when you hear, talk, hear Steelers analysts talk about him, that's really the, the general um, frustration with him is that is that he's been a little bit weak as a coverage guy, but usually good in the other downhill elements of, of what he does at slot corner. Um, they have are in a position which is exceptionally fortuitous with regard to Pepe Williams. Now, Pepe um, is in his third week of his three week window to be activated from IR where he's already been got the designated to return status. So um, he has to be activated by either Tuesday or Wednesday of this week, but it doesn't matter because for the first practice of this week, he would need to be activated. Um, and that would mean the Ravens would have to uh, have room on the 53 man roster, which I believe they do right now because they activated one and Josh Ross and only had to deactivate five. So I believe they have an extra position right now sitting on the roster. Somebody else could confirm that for me, but uh, but I believe that to be the case. So since they have room to activate Pepe Williams, I'm fairly sure they will. He meets a slot corner need. He is a guy who has had played some safety. The problem is I don't. I'm not real excited about giving that position to Pepe Williams right off the bat. Um, so I think they'll probably stay with Mallette for starters, but they have their backup with with Pepe. Pepe also, since he's played a little safety during the preseason, is a guy um, they have had in-game, all kinds of in-game problems this year maintaining their safety depth. So there have been games where they, I think there's been a game at least where they did, haven't activated Worley. Uh, certainly there's been a case where he's been hurt at, at least, and they've only had three safeties, and that hasn't always gone well because somebody like Hamilton got disqualified once. You had Williams get injured. You had Williams be not really effective because of injury um, other times. So there's been various times they've, they've had to deal with that safety position. 
And I think having one more guy who can play there would be really nice. Now they, they did obviously put Brandon Stevens back there for a little bit of time one week, but um, it's not the kind of thing you want. You don't want to take your best corner out of that, out of that outside role and toss him to safety unless it's an absolute emergency. So uh, I think, I think Pepe makes all kinds of sense to be, to be added to the roster at this point and very good roster management that they left an open spot. At least I think they did. And then they have the, um, DTR available. So those DTRs, you get eight per year designated to return from, from injured reserve and they're use them or lose them. And I had hypothesized this off season that the number had actually been reduced by eight and it's been kind of whittled down since the COVID years. Um, that the number had been whittled down to eight because specifically other teams were frustrated with the way the Ravens had manipulated the fringe of the roster. And there may be other teams doing it too, but the Ravens are always extremely adept at managing the fringe of the roster. And eight was probably a compromised number. And the Ravens find themselves, despite some injuries they've had this year, uh, in December with, I believe it's still four to be used. And these these two that they have right now, Malik Cam and Pepe, are two that they are using for potential returns. But then they're also looking at their other injuries and they're saying, you know, we don't really have anybody who's going to return. If somebody gets hurt now, they're probably not going to be able to return in four weeks, but then there might be a condition where somebody be out for two weeks, say, and then we just leave them on the active roster. But there's not, it's not nearly as likely that somebody's going to be out for four weeks and be able to return, even when you go into the playoffs. So I think that the, the Ravens are probably, you know, treated these as expendable DTRs and they've done so with both players. Ham still has, I believe two weeks of windowing. So he doesn't have to play the next two weeks. But he could he if they have the need for an outside linebacker, he'll be ready. And the Ravens, uh, no doubt, will activate him as well if that need arises uh, during this period, as it as it did here with Pepe. Uh, in, talk, in terms of other corners, they have uh, Darby was active for the game, didn't play any snaps, which is a, you know a little bit unusual given you know that that he's been very effective. I thought maybe they would they would um, go back to a rotation between Humphrey and Darby since Humphrey's been out for a while. Um, I just I wouldn't say that Humphrey really looked like he's been out for a while. He was flagged for a DPI that looked like it was completely ticky tack um, BS of Nakua kind of holding his arm and then flopping. Um, I thought that was uh, you know not a bad play by Humphrey. In fact, I thought he had excellent coverage on the play. Um, and he did have one play that's been you know bantied about on Twitter where he's in man coverage trailing the receiver and um, he, he, one of the disadvantages of man coverage is that you don't have all your eyes back into the backfield looking at the quarterback. You know, I, when, when that's happening, I say the defense is all watching the same movie. And they're all reacting to the ball carrier in the same way. It creates good opportunities directly for second man to the ball, punching the ball free. One guy holds him, the next guy strips him kind of thing. Um, so you have all those kind of opportunities that occur from not to, not to mention the interception chances, but uh, you don't uh, uh, you don't always have your back. You, you, you sometimes have your back to the field when you're in man coverage, back to the quarterback, I should say. And that was the case on Humphrey and the receiver on the play. And I forget who it was actually kind of gave him the hook on the play uh, by slowing down and pretending like the play was over. And then the, the, the ball carrier moved to one side of him and uh, uh, and he uh, missed his chance to make a tackle. So that was unfortunate, but that's not really on Humphrey. That's just the nature of man coverage and, and you know, what happened on the play. So I thought Humphrey played pretty well. I'm still surprised that Darby didn't get it, get in there. 
Uh, Yasin was inactive entirely. So I think we're, we're seeing a new like pecking order. Kind of a little surprising that Jalen Arbor Davis is active over Yasin. So maybe there's some new things in practice that are going on. The other thing I think that people would point to is that JAD is a special teams player. I don't believe Yasin is a core special teamer across several units. He may be on one unit uh, as a hands guy or something. I, I honestly don't know. Um, but uh, but he, I don't believe he's a he's a multiple units core special teams guy. So he's uh, uh, somebody the Ravens felt like they could do without in this game, and and they did. So uh, he didn't have a snap versus the Rams. Let's see, extremely effective uh, game out of Stafford here. Um, you know, one thing that's funny to see out of Stafford is he does two things as a thrower that are really odd. One is he throws some very unnecessary arm angles. And so there's one time we saw in this game, it was on a third down too, where he went outside the pocket. Nobody's in front of him. You know, he's outside the pocket. That's the nature of the thing. There's nobody chasing him. There's no other person in between him and the receiver. And suddenly he throws this, you know, sidearm ball that looks like not Todd Froworth, because that would be an underarm ball, but he looked like a, you know, a real sidearm thrower in terms of, of you know, slinging from you know, not even 60%, you know, more like 50. It did not appear to be right. The ball went up, you know, in terms of, of uh, uh, loft. And the receiver, it was a little bit too high for him, and it, and it went incomplete. It was just completely unnecessary arm angle, so it was pretty weird. The other thing that you sometimes see, and we saw this a lot in this game, is very effective on it, is Stafford is, is extremely effective throwing to an open spot on the field where no defender can get it. And he throws some of the ugliest lofted footballs to those sorts of spots. And you see play, you know, players like a cup whose speed is good, but not great. And uh, Nakua, whose speed is pretty good um, running under those balls. And it just, it's, it's so frustrating to see these flotation devices thrown up there and these Rams receivers, you know, running under the ball, Marcus Robinson too, for that matter. But, but cup and Nakua in particular in this game, I'm, I, I recall multiple times, including the touchdown to cup on the left side of the end zone, um, being one and a long play to Nakua on the right side, uh, being balls that just get run under, um, that that uh, is actually Stafford being quite effective at knowing how to avoid an interception being thrown at the defense. So uh, it looks ugly, and it really got the job done. But he had very solid time in the pocket. But like you know, just like I said, it looks like he's playing lawn darts. That's what it looked like. Is he's like he's like trying to throw lawn darts or cornhole or whatever you want to call it into a ring. And you know, avoid the defense uh, uh, in so doing. I said with lawn darts, you probably won't avoid the other children that you're playing with too at the same time. So uh, that's it's probably a good analogy. Uh, anyway, uh, he had a lot of ample time space opportunities in this game. We'll get to that a little later. Was not particularly effective with his ample time and space opportunities, particularly relative to everything else, because he was he was fairly um, a fairly average effectiveness. Sorry, a fairly consistent effectiveness, regardless of whether it's pressure ATS. Or ball out quick. So we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, the Ravens' historic yards per play against. So we've been f- tracking that, of course, week after week. Uh, it was at 4.18 entering this game. The 2008 Steelers at 4.30 are the best team post the strike shortened 1982 season. A couple teams in 1982 were better in a, sh- in a short year of only nine games. But uh, but since then, only the 2008 Steelers or the 2008 Steelers have the best record at 4.30, and the Ravens um, had theirs go from 4.18 on the 
all the way up to 4.37 from the results of this game. So um, good passing conditions, I think. And that's one of the things I want to talk about here that I think is an important takeaway from the game is that the Ravens did not have an exceptional game of pass defense in multiple ways in this game. They didn't really get get great pass rush. We're going to talk about that. They they didn't seem to be great in coverage, and they had some penalties. Not a terrible number. You know, one one was BS on on Humphrey. Another one was. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details was real in terms of of the Hamilton DPI call. But in, in any case, they, they had some trouble um, being in position to stop receivers. They didn't have a turnover in the game, and obviously they didn't get a lot of pressure in the game. Um, but I think a lot of that was based on the conditions. And you had a slippery field. Pass rushers have a hard time getting off uh, and really getting off with a strong first step on a wet field like that. Even when you got your cleats right, um, uh, you you still have you don't have the same kind of power uh, and, and the same kind of burst off the edge and whatnot. We saw the Rams have some difficulty with that as well. Aaron Donald, while he did wreak some havoc, was not you know his normal self in terms of. Uh, of uh, getting on the quarterback multiple times in this game. The only guy who it didn't seem to bother was Matt Abike, and we'll, uh, we'll talk about him in a little bit. But anyway, uh, the point I'm making is that I think more of this was tied to condition than tied to the fact that they really played a great quarterback or a great passing game or the other things. They did. They played a good quarterback in Stafford. He's a professional quarterback. He's been around the league for a long time. Um, you know, he, he knows how to keep the ball away from the defense. Sometimes he still can't do it. Uh, he does some silly things with these arm angles, but generally speaking, he's a very good quarterback. And uh, he's a guy you would expect to put up some yardage on the Ravens. And he certainly, given the opportunity, he put up some. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't a tremendously exceptional total. And I think the Ravens will be better in future weeks, even against quarterbacks that are pretty good, because I think conditions will tend to be better. So go to Jacksonville next week. Hopefully the weather will not be like it was today and even with a, a quick release guy like Lawrence in there um, I'm hoping that um, Lawrence feels some of that Ravens pressure in terms of of what's going on um, is forced to play more small ball than the Rams were in this game the Rams didn't play small ball the way other teams like the Bengals have against the Ravens and that slows their offense down a little bit at least that's what I'd like to see so anyway I, I don't I would not take away from this game that the Ravens have lost their mojo against good quarterbacks that they will basically face for the remainder of the season with the exception of Pittsburgh. So the remainder of the season is Trevor Lawrence. He appears like he'll play next week. They've got uh, Purdy in San Francisco. They'll come home for Tua 
uh, which is a tough game nominally in terms of uh, Miami. It's the most important game on the schedule. Then they have the Pittsburgh game. Hopefully that doesn't mean anything. They don't even have to have anything to play for, and they can rest some starters, I would hope. And then whoever they play in the playoffs, you got to figure they're going to have a good quarterback. So it'll be good quarterbacks the rest of the way, and I don't think you have to take from this game that the Ravens have lost their mojo as an integrated unit and that McDonald's system won't work anymore against good quarterbacks. I think it really was condition-based that this occurred. Let's move on. They lost the snap count 73 to 71. Um, one of my big problems with this game was the clock management, as I mentioned earlier. They had a big chance to reduce the defensive snaps by driving in a more controlled, managed clock manner on that final touchdown drive they had in regulation. They had to take 10 extra defensive snaps or potentially as many as 10 extra defensive snaps. Probably some portion of 10 is the reasonable way to look at it um, because they um, didn't manage the clock on that drive. And uh, and that was unfortunate. But, uh, but the defense had been worked pretty hard. And uh, as, as I've mentioned lots of times on the show, defending the field against four down football. Uh, is extraordinarily difficult. So you don't want to ever put your opponent in a position where they have a chance to do that. And you especially don't want your opponent give them a minute, minute and a half left to go in the game with a touchdown wins and a field goal ties, which is what they gave Stafford. So uh, anyway, uh, that's to be avoided. Go back to the beginning of this game. Just going to take a drink here because I've been talking nonstop for 30 minutes here. Go back to the beginning of this game, and the Rams ran the ball nine consecutive plays running out of the gate. Let me make sure that's true. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine consecutive plays. That's right. And and drove the ball right down the field. And then they ended up passing three times, all three incomplete, uh, once they got down to a first and nine situation. So it's actually kind of kind of funny that they they shot themselves in the foot to to end that drive and only end up with a field goal. Um but it's, it's kind of tough to see the Ravens get run over on that drive. Um, and then you look at their results for the rest of the game, and they, they they defended the run reasonably effectively, which means they gave up 4.3 yards per play. A lot of people would say that that's high. And if you're a spoiled, entitled Ravens fan like I am, and you look back to the first 20 years of Ravens history, you think, well, that's way too high. We'd be upset giving up even four yards of carry. Well, the Ravens always made the choice to defend against the run very effectively during the first 20 years of this franchise. In fact, they never gave up 4.0 yards per uh, carry in any season. They were close. They were up to 3.994 once, but they, they, they never gave up 4.0 in any in any season, which always is a hallmark of the team, along with the ability to stop the run, uh, even when they were in a nickel defense. Uh, so so they, they, you know, we're used to seeing run defense be excellent, but McDonald's defense makes that choice, starting with 2i on a lot of plays, um, to rotate into other coverage and take an benefit in terms of how they can disguise the coverage at the expense of teasing, but throwing a red carpet, red flag out there for the other team to try and run on you. And Kyron Williams is a lot of the strength of the Rams offense. The Rams offensive line also not bad at, at blocking for the run here. And, and they're, uh, I would say they're worse in terms of pass blocking. And uh, they did a very good job of getting him off to a good start in this game with runs of 5, 10, 4, 9, 3, 6, 2, 2, and 11 on that first drive. And he wasn't done for the day at that point, but uh, but that was a lot of the damage he did. And then the, uh, uh, fortunately, Stafford managed to turn it into three points with uh, three incomplete passes uh, at the end. Anyway, 
remember it's a choice it's a it's a it's a feature it's not a bug is the way to think of it maybe uh in terms of uh, how we hear software this these years entire defensive line um kind of up and down in this game matabike certainly had a good game uh, we're going to talk about him in terms of his individual uh, contributions here. But one of the things that's been interesting about Matabike this year is that he's had uh, not nearly enough total pressures to support his sack total. Well, this game, he got five more individual pressures as I scored it. And all of them were quarterback hits, including one sack that was also a late sack. So it's a, so it's not a three-second pressure. It is a sack, uh, to be sure. Um, he extended his streak to now 10 consecutive games with at least half a sack. He's only the 11th player in the history of the NFL to do that since they've been counting sacks. And the the pro football reference uh, supposedly goes back to the merger, but I think if I recall correctly, their sack totals only go back to the early 80s correctly. So um, I believe they 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 we, we can't make the statement as, as universally – um, as it has been made, uh, but uh, but it is a uh, um, impressive total nonetheless. There have been uh, only five guys who've done it eleven or more times, um, and uh, Chris Jones is the only guy who's done it ten or more times who's an interior defensive lineman like Matabike is. So uh, Justin, well on his way to, to to a big payday this offseason. We hope it's with the Ravens, but it might not be. And uh, either way, uh, hope we has a super role ring to think about, you know, where he wants to play next year. Uh, let's see, what else we want to talk about? Let's talk a little bit about the packages the Ravens use in this game, because they use more than what they typically have in a, uh, in a game this year. So they've, they, they had been very much a going between base and nickel and, the nickel, there was a little bit of differentiation between the big nickel and the standard nickel. When standard nickel being with Mollett is in the slot, the big nickel being with uh, Hamilton in that slot position. So they did have some of that in this game. Uh, so we'll start with that. They played 26 uh, big nickel snaps. And I know I was going to have the stats ready on this, and I just paged away from it here. But when they're in the the big nickel, they give up 4.9 yards per play. They had both their sacks on that on 26 plays, 13 runs for for uh, and thir- 13 runs and 13 passes um, total, 13 runs for 60 and 13 passes for 67. So uh, a pretty good defense there with with Hamilton on the on the field. You'd expect that. Um, and in the standard nickel, and some of that had Hamilton on the field as the strong safety, but most of it. Did not because Mollett was on the field largely replacing Hamilton. Actually, I'm not even sure if they played any snaps together in this game. I have to look for that. But with Mollett in there, um, 19 plays, 150 yards, 7.9 yards per play. And if you think back to the earlier statistics I gave you, that it's 4.1 with Hamilton and 7.7 without him, that pretty much explains it there, that difference between the big nickel and the standard nickel. All right, they played... Eight snaps of base, 40 yards, 5.0 yards per play. The one thing about the Rams is they don't like to run against the base defense. So when the Ravens had two outside linebackers flanking their three down linemen, which is the, the base in a 34, um, they only passed the ball. Sorry, they only ran the ball one time for two yards, and they passed it seven times for 38. So I think whether the calls were coming in the sideline that way or whether the Rams' standard procedure with Stafford is to come in with one run, one pass you can check into, uh, they were either 
changing the play at the sideline with the understanding that what the Ravens were going to do in terms of base personnel, or they, they changed it at the line of scrimmage to go away from the run there and go past, but they really did not um, make an attempt to run into the Ravens base defense, which I think that's just smart football. The other team has base on the field. They're basically daring you to pass. Go ahead and do it. Uh, in today's game. So we talked about the two, the big nickel and the standard nickel. They also had two other nickels they ran in this game. One was the the uh, what I call the uncovered nickel or open. I, a lot of a lot of teams call it different things, but effectively you use one outside linebacker on the play, and you have three down linemen. You have your two inside linebackers, and you have five defensive backs. And so you you basically have one at one edge of your defense is manned by a five tech as the outside guy. And the Ravens did that with Brent Urban on 17 plays in this game. They'd used it a couple of times previously this season, but not really much. So this is a kind of a a compromise between playing the base defense and still having nickel personnel on the field. You can kind of think of it as what the Ravens used to play was the compromise they don't really do anymore is um, playing a jumbo nickel which would have three down linemen and only one inside linebacker. So you're making, instead of a sacrifice of an inside linebacker, you're instead making a sacrifice of an outside linebacker um, using this uncovered nickel. By the way, Brent Urban, I thought, played pretty well in the game. And he's been one of the really unheralded players for the Ravens. But this was one of his really better games of the year. Uh, He got a pressure in the game. He played pretty well in terms of the edge. Didn't always work out in terms of the run plays when he was on the field. But I thought most of it was not um, his doing. I thought he actually covered his covered his position pretty well. So they ran the ball 12 times for 59. So almost five yards per carry against the uncovered nickel and five pass plays for 48. So 6.3 yards per play. The Rams, you know, moved the ball fairly effectively there. But it was an interesting way that McDonald tried to not automatically give the Rams the opportunity to throw against base, but instead to, to present them with this other look that gave them a little better, better chance to have a better pass defense. So again, kind of an intermediate um, choice that he made there. They played one snap of rush nickel. They haven't played that much this year at all, but they had Clowney, Owe, and Van Noy all in the field for the same play. Um, and I think that was fairly early, maybe even on the first drive. Yes, it was on the very first drive on the third and nine play from the nine yard line. Um, and they uh, uh, had all three of those guys uh, on to threaten rushing the passer. And looks like they all did because none of them dropped off the line of scrimmage on the play. And uh, Roquan Smith ended up getting the um, pressure on the play, and that play went incomplete. So nice to see the rush nickel um, make a comeback. Uh, has not been a staple of defense by any means this year because the Ravens just haven't had enough healthy outside linebackers. But if you go back to previous years, that was woo. That was Wink's, you know, basic look for passing downs was to get as many outside linebackers as he could on the field. And sometimes he would have th- three in a kind of a rush nickel look, and other times he would have four, which I we used to term the race car look. Um, we haven't seen the race car uh, this season, I don't believe. If we have, it's for one snap or something, but I don't believe we've seen it even once. Uh, so anyway, the, the the Ravens really just don't have the personnel to to put all three of their guys on the field and keep rotating them in the game. Uh, the way they would like to. They also, one thing to note about the base defense in this game is, and, and for that matter, the uncovered nickel, that was also a little bit of a concession to not having Harrison available. Malik Harrison is normally a guy who plays outside linebacker in the Ravens' base defense package. He's a good run defender. They really like having him on there. They oftentimes will start a game with him in there uh, on the edge. 
and they'll play him on a lot of first downs uh, opposite Tavius Robinson to try and put out a, a a pair of of pretty good run defenders who are also guys who are eating up some early down snaps so you don't waste your top pass rushers on those early down lower leverage snaps. So anyway, I think they, they, they've done a pretty good job with that this year, but they've kind of missed Malik Harris. You know, I believe missed this game with an, with a groin injury that he that limited in practice and the whole week. So don't know how long it's going to take him to get back, but, uh, but he's kind of a key player for the Ravens uh, in, in the sense of keeping your outside linebackers well rested. One snap a dime. It's now the whole sixth time they've played dime the entire season. So it's been less than 1% of the snaps. It came on the last play of regulation when Worley was inserted. They were basically guarding the end zone. Uh, the pass was incomplete, and the Rams subsequently kicked that game-tying field goal uh, on that last play of – not a last play regulation, but on fourth down um, there at that point. All right, how are we doing on time here? Let's see. Okay, we'll talk a little bit about the pass rush. I think we have time for that, and then I'll, I'll come back and I'll do the individual stuff in, in part two here. But uh, pass rush had a probably their worst game of the season, to, to put it in the, in the simplest terms. So to go through a few of the things, uh, McDonald used a fifth pass rusher on 10 of 43 plays. It was 23% of the time. So it didn't go crazy using numbers against the, um, uh, the Rams in this game. Uh, they did, if I looked at it strictly by numbers, when they rushed three or fewer, they had, well, it was just one with three, three, uh, three-man rush. They had one play for zero yards. Uh, they used a four-man rush 32 times out of 43, so about 75% of the time, 212 yards, 6.6 yards per play. Both sacks were included in that. Now, here's the thing about both those sacks. Both those sacks were on ample time and space. So they were coverage sacks where uh, Stafford just eventually got run down in the pocket and ran out of time. Uh, It's nice that the uh, pass rush is being dogged in their pursuit. Late pressure is still a value. I don't credit players with pressure for for a late pressure, Um, but it it still has value to continue to chase the quarterback. Uh, It just puts a lot of pressure on your secondary to maintain coverage for more than three seconds, and it usually doesn't work out, particularly with the conditions uh, we had today. But anyway, uh, uh, two sacks uh, with ample time space. When they rushed five, eight plays, 36 yards, four and a half yards per play, and they did rush six on two different plays and gave up 34 yards on those 17.0 yards per play. So uh, it didn't really work out for them. Uh, In particular, rushing five plus, uh, it, it wasn't much better or worse than um, than when they uh, uh, rushed four or three. So uh, overall, they were at six point six yards per play, and with four, they were at six point six yards per play. So that kind of kind of tells the story there. In terms of ample time and space, I think there's a different and more interesting story to be told. First of all, St- Stafford had ample time and space on eighteen of forty three dropbacks. That's forty two percent. That's the highest rate the Ravens have allowed the entire season. So that's a three second pocket time to step into your throw. But here's the thing: on those eighteen plays, the Rams only averaged six point three yards per play. And I already told you they took two late sacks among those eighteen plays. They were ATS sacks. So. Uh, to say that Stafford did not make the most of his ample time and space opportunities is kind of an understatement here. I'd say that's pretty darn poor that you only get 6.3 yards per play and 
he had opportunities. He missed some open receivers uh, during this game, so he wasn't perfect by any stretch. Um, but he uh, uh, he almost seems like he's better under pressure sometimes. And when Stafford is under pressure, he puts up one of those flotation devices to a spot on the field, and you're saying, that's got to be picked off. And then, oh, no, somehow Cooper Cup is underneath the ball. You just are cursing uh, at the stuff. But that's you know that's what he does. So anyway, ball out quick. Let's move on a little bit. 20, 10 times for ball out quick. That's 23%, uh, 7.7 yards per play on that. So the Rams were somewhat effective. I'd say 7.7 yards per play is, is, is good on ball out quick. When the Ravens hold teams to about five yards per play on ball out quick, that's what they would like. And I would like Jackson to be around six or a little over in terms of yards per play on the ball. He, he gets out quickly and, and hopefully uh, – uh, get some yards after the catch on such plays. And uh, they, I did that a lot with likely last week in terms of getting some nice balls to the outside and letting him, um, I think he had 44 yak and 40 yards for the game. So he definitely was was making some things happen after the play. Uh, the Ravens generated a pressure event on 15 plays, only 35%. That's a very low number. The Ravens have been over 50% a couple times this year. They've been in the 40s a lot of the time. And one of the things that often will go in hand in hand is that ball out quick and that pressure rate. So the ball out quick level is really low. That's not a good thing. Ball out quick is an evidence of the other team is trying to make is, is having to play small ball because your pressure rate is really high and they have to react to it by throwing more balls out quickly, which also cuts into the number of ample time and space opportunities they have. So a pressure, a low pressure rate often you know, goes into having a low ball out quick rate and a high ample time and space rate if you're wondering where that gets picked up. And the sum of those three adds up to one in case uh, that's not obvious to people, but uh, all, all passes are categorized into one of those, one of those three areas. So uh, when Stafford had pressure, um, he was not even sacked once in this game, and he threw for 6.1 yards per play, which is absolutely outstanding. Uh, a typical rate might be somewhat under four um, with pressure. And I have a, let's see if, if I have the number for the year for the Ravens, because it was really good coming into this game. Remember it's, it's 1.4 yards roughly for pressure the entire season. Um, but it is now up to after this game. Uh, okay. I'll give you the all three while we're at it. So ample time and space for the season is at 26.6%. And they, they, the Rams are at 43 um, and the yards per pass with the ample time space 6.4 which is fantastic by the way for the ravens coverage unit they're able to hold up and only give up 6.4 i think a normal number eight and a half nine would be what i would expect out of lamar jackson for yards per pass with ample time and space ball out quick um the ravens have been 32.4 percent of the season and 6.1 yards per play stafford was up at 7.7 so that's obviously a good game and and uh improved the average uh in this one those two sacks, by the way, the the Ravens' first two sacks with ample time and space the entire season. So uh, uh, that was uh, something to look at. Anyway, the pressure rate uh, for the season, they're at 41%. So in only a 35% rate, that obviously might have been 42% before this. But uh, if, if you're pressuring the opponent at a higher rate, it also pressures them into more ball-out quicks. And um, and uh, that was this was a case where uh, uh, the pressure. I'm sorry, I, I, that's the number I was looking for. The yards per pass play on pressures for the entire season is 1.7. Now, um, I think it was 1.4 before this game, and Stafford was over six. So, big big difference here. And um, and the Ravens have had a, a remarkable season of really 
keeping um, opposing quarterbacks in check with with big sack yard numbers in particular on the uh, feeding into those net yards totals you're hearing there uh, with pressure. All right. Now we always talk about about uh, elements of deception. So McDonald dialed up eight individual blitzes uh, in this game. He had, he had uh, five plays that he did on three doubles and two singles. Uh, in terms of those are off ball blitzes. Those individuals who are blitzing from at least a yard and a half off the line of scrimmage or no closer than opposite the slot receiver. So that's the definition I use. Uh, I know other teams, other people do it differently. And a lot of other people, if they say the word blitz, what they really mean is five plus are rushing. Okay. Not the way I look at, because that doesn't get into the deceptive element of blitzing. Um, but anyway, 0.19 uh, off ball blitzes per pass play. Uh, three doubles, two singles. Those five plays, the Rams gained 55 yards, so 11.0 yards per play. And it is a, it's a small sample size, but that's still extremely effective that Stafford was against the Blitz. And I generally think of him as a hot read guy who, if you try and come after him the Blitz, he's going to have an answer for it. And uh, he was in this game. Uh, he had the answers to, to deal with it. Stunts have been something that's been very effective for the Ravens, and stunts are effective when the quarterback wants to take a lot of time in the pocket, and Stafford didn't have a lot of ball-out quicks in this game, so stunts are one of the things that I would think as an element of deception would have been pretty effective at getting to Stafford, but they had 16 stunts spread out among 11 plays, so they had some singles and some doubles in there, obviously, but those plays resulted in 105 net yards, which is 9.5 yards per pass, uh, with one sack and no turnovers so i can't pick up anything positive out of that element of deception either so uh, stafford had the answer for stunts um and i'm i couldn't tell you without you know looking at the plays individually exactly what he did i can't reconstruct that in my head right now whether the ball was out quickly or he had a you know check down receiver he went to or whatever he did when when the ball needed to be out at 2.8 seconds day because a stunt was uh, was starting to get home but the other, the, you know, part of the other problem was the Ravens probably had more trouble getting started on their stunts because they need that really powerful first step, and that was harder to get on this slick field. And uh, uh, you know, that's something they had to had to deal with the whole game. Simulated pressure, the third element of deception. Um, they did that four times in the game, six net yards. Again, small sample size, but one point five yards per play. Uh, that at least seemed to work. So if you're looking at uh, what messed Stafford up a little bit. At least that was there. Uh, could have been some of that messed up the offensive line on the four plays involved. Um, there's not a lot to go on there. Uh, they did they used multiple elements of deception on nine different plays. That is not a small number. In fact, it's a that's one of the highest numbers. It's a it's a season high number, but it's also one of the highest numbers I've seen over games in the past. Um, and LA gained 103 yards on those nine plays, or 11.6 yards per play. So. Um, Pretty much whatever the Ravens did in terms of deception in this game didn't work very well. And honestly, I'd say uh, they were worse off trying to deceive Stafford than they were not trying to deceive him. Uh, so they'd have been better off probably using a uh, you know a straight four-man rush. Yeah, obviously, Stafford, McVay are going to come up with ways to beat a consistent four-man rush as well. So you've got to show him some different looks, just like you can't throw the fastball every pitch just because it's your best pitch. Um, that's that's a, a case where uh, uh, they would have figured out how to beat it. But uh, deception did not work. The deception used did not work against Stafford in this game. C. 
see, Matabike led the whole team with five pressures. I talked about that earlier. All of them were QHs. That included a late sack, which isn't really a pressure, but it's a pressure for, it obviously is a significant takedown of the quarterback. And he had another pressure that was negated by penalty as well. So um, unfortunate, but uh, uh, this is a game where he, he again converted a higher a high percentage of his uh, in, into pressures into actually dropping the quarterback, which has been really nice about Matabike this year. Uh, Travis Jones had both a late sack and a late quarterback hit. Nice dogged pursuit of the quarterback, not particularly timely pressure, but still nice to see Travis Jones getting in, taking the quarterback down, hopefully getting his weight on that quarterback a little bit. And uh, uh, whatever the rules say about, about uh, roughing the passer, we'll take our chances. Kyle Van Noy, two pressures and a pass defense at the line of scrimmage. Um, the one pass defense he had, by the way, I don't know if people noticed it, but it was on a pass to Nakua that was over the middle that looked like a straight drop um, uh, by him. But the ball was tipped at the line of scrimmage, actually, by Van Noy, which changed the rotation on the football and made it very difficult for Nakua to, to, to control the football or to, or to catch the football. Uh, and he, he ended up turning his head and the the the, you know, the TV announcers were really on him for, oh, yeah, that's what he did. He looked upside, looked upfield before he had the football. Yeah, it's true. But his timing was kind of thrown off by the fact that that uh, that uh, uh, Van Noy had gotten a piece of that football uh, off the off the start. All right, well, we'll take a little bit of break here. We'll be back for part two. Talk about. Uh, some individual results. We have a lot to talk about in terms of, of that, in terms of some individual big games. Uh, we'll go to some mailbag questions. You have some great ones in there, particularly what the Ravens are going to do going forward at that slot corner position. Um, and, uh, and then we'll talk about the MVPs from this game that I have. So uh, we'll get back to all that in part two. Uh, other folks out there, a couple of things I'd like to ask you to do. First of all, if you have interest in doing a film study short, hit me up. DMs are always open on Twitter. People have heard heard this mantra before, but please don't be shy. Just hit me up. I, I love to talk to new people about football, and I love to hear your ideas that you have because there's often something, a kernel of an idea, a new statistic you'd like to develop, something you've noticed that maybe other people haven't seen. Um, you know, Somebody was asking me in this game, why did Harbaugh throw that challenge flag? What was his goal of throwing a challenge flag when he couldn't possibly challenge that play? What was he trying to accomplish? It's a great question. I, I don't really know the answer, but it's the kind of thing that might be worth a, a 10 or 15 minute discussion. And it's part of what I'm trying to provide is some shorter content for people that's less intimidating than these one hour episodes. Um, so anyway, hope you'll hope you'll talk to me about that. If you're a longtime fan, I know a lot of you people are just the most loyal people on earth. And the reason I know that is because you remember every damn thing I say. And so there's so many of you out there who will say, but you said on August 19th that this was going to happen. And, you know, and that's fantastic. I love you people to death for it. And really appreciate having, um, you know, audience like you, uh, obviously very cerebral, very into the to, to some of the depth of football and into some of the thought experiments we, we, we go through into the show. Um, if you would, please like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Always like to have a little bit of subscriber base over that. I've never really tried to push that before, but uh, would be happy if if you do that. If you're, if you're listening to this on YouTube, please, please like and subscribe. Comment on the YouTube channel if you like. I'll try and respond to comments out there and be better about doing that on a regular basis. Uh, you can also comment within the uh, filmstudybaltimore.com on the articles um, uh, there as well. So I'd, I'd love to hear from you uh, there. If you just want to contact me otherwise, you can always DM me on Twitter. You can send me an email if you want at filmstudy21 at verizon.net. Um, and I'm very, I want to be accessible. I want to generally be the, like a, 
talk show host on the radio that you can call up and, and discuss some particular interest. We'll just have an engaging conversation for a few minutes and, and uh, do a show based on that. The last thing I'd ask is if you have time and you wouldn't mind writing a nice five-star review for the, for the show, if you've listened to the, the, the show for this long, you probably are a five-star fan. Uh, I'd really appreciate it. It doesn't take too long to put together 50 words or less and uh, say what you like about the show for, for other folks who, who might want to, uh, no, and they're going a lot by what other people say in the reviews about the show. So really appreciate that. Anyway, thanks for listening here, doing the show solo tonight, and we'll talk to you next time on Film Study. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.